Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. We're officially past spooky season. We're in November now, uh, but I've been hooked on the pumpkin spice cold brew. It's not a latte. No. It's just like it's just cold thing. brew, period. I haven't gotten it, so I don't actually know. I don't drink caffeine anymore. <laughs> but anyways. <laughs> it's really good. I My sister was hooked on it, and then now like everyone in the house is hooked on it, and I've just been getting it. So, um, But it's from Starbucks. Hashtag not sponsored. If Starbucks, you are listening and you'd like to sponsor us, then that'd be great. But yes, I Super would just nice. like to tell everyone that pumpkin spice cold brew is really good. And, you know, even if it's not spooky season, it's still gourd season. I think that's gourd season. <laughs> Pumpkins are gourds. I don't want to be exclusionary. You know, all the other gourds are nice too, like acorn squash. Is it acorn squash? I don't know. Anyway, like you said, it is no longer spooky season and it's November. We're recording this on November 2nd, the day before the election. Oh my God. Um, but I definitely wanted to just say what day it is that we're recording because a lot of things will likely have happened between the day we're recording this and it releasing. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. Anticipation and anticipation. Mm. That's my okay. word for the week. Um, okay. If you would like to take a moment and subscribe and leave us a review, maybe we could get sponsored by things. Um, we want to shout out a recent review from Pick Queen 1. I think that's how you would say that. I'm not sure. A podcast that covers really valuable topics in really engaging and fun ways. Love how the hosts navigate these topics thoughtfully and the guests are always so great as well. It's a must listen, especially in times like these. Yeah, what a yes. nice review. <laughs> I know. It's such a nice review. Um, thank you, Pack Queen, PCK queen i don't know how to say your <laughs> handle but thank you so much for your review if you want us to give you a shout out leave us a review and we'll take it out and you know read it as well yes and ah i'm like reading the thing but my brain is not registering things today um sorry in advance to everyone listening i just got lasik so reading things is hard with my eyes but i do have 2020 vision now um I do not get any sponsorship for the place I went to, but I really liked it. So if you want to know where to go to get LASIK, you can let me know and maybe they will also sponsor me and give me back my money. Um, but yes, let's talk about what we're gonna do. who we're talking today. Susanna, you want to give a little introduction? Yes. Today we have a brilliant guest joining us to talk about occupational science therapy, a field where most of us may not even realize how applicable it is to our daily lives and activities. So to introduce our wonderful guest, Dr. Kalila Johnson is an assistant professor in the Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She also serves as an affiliate research faculty member at the Virginia Commonwealth University Center for Cultural Experiences and Prevention. Academia love long names, that's what I <laughs> Um, broadly, Dr. Johnson's research focuses on access and participation in health and vocational services of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities from minoritized backgrounds, as well as developing culturally informed interventions to increase their community engagement. Her work is informed by 14 years of clinical experience spanning Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. As a board member of the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity and the Society for the Study of Occupation USA, Dr. Johnson is also heavily involved in work to address racial equity in occupational therapy practice and education. She is also a member of the American Occupational Therapy Association, the World Federation of Occupational Therapists, the National Black Occupational Therapy Caucus, 
the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. Woo! How do you have time? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, that is pretty hilarious about academia liking long titles and names because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's the so more true. letters you have in an acronym, the better, right? That's right. No <laughs> lies detected on that. <laughs> so, well, the um, credentials, probably the less you get paid, too. But, you know, I see that graph happening, right? The graph is going up for credentials, but your pay is going down. <laughs> as, <laughs> that's um, funny. Um, so since, you know, earlier I mentioned what day it is and in this newest season of the podcast, we are trying to just, you know, get a feel for how everyone's doing and checking in with everyone. So before we get started, how was your weekend? How's it going? How are you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, I actually voted early last weekend. So, Yay. you know, I, I am, I'm usually about, you know, going to the polls on actual election day, like standing in line and all that. But, you know, I have a lot more anxiety about that this year. You know, I anticipate mm -hmm. that there'll, there may be some violence and that sort of thing. And, um, and mm -hmm. you know, plus Corona, um, I just figure it would be best to, to go early. So mm -hmm. yeah, my um, polling location is the law school at North Carolina Central University. And so from door to door, um, I was able to go vote in like 30 minutes. So wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I was going to ask how long it took, and I'm glad it only took 30 minutes. Yeah, not yeah. long at all. It took me longer to fill in uh, the actual ballot than it took to drive over <laughs> to the back home. So uh, hopefully people in North Carolina know to flip the ballot over. So um, that's right. Yeah. Turn the ballot over. Fill it all out. Yeah. The Is there a mail-in ballot option in your state? Uh, yeah. But, you know, with all the controversy around mm -hmm. the United States Postal Service, it's like, yeah. you know, do you trust it or not? But I'm like, you know, yeah. we trust USPS with our IRS documentation. So why would those <laughs> be different? Um, but, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, North Carolina Central is just too close to my home not to mm -hmm. um, go, go do it in person. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. It's great that you had an option to go early and go in person. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, thankfully. So let's talk about um, your work then. How, you know, I imagine you've been busy within the last eight months now that we've been in this pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and then the added layers of a lot of social issues going on. So what has been filling up your time? Gosh, so probably since uh, spring break, if if you call it spring break back in March, um, and you couple that, of course, with the just social and racial unrest we've been experiencing in the country, you know, a number of issues of racism and practice and education. And so I've been spending a lot of my time participating in those panels and doing some guest lectures, of course, doing my own reading and writing on the topic, as well as some of the work we're we're doing in our or in my department at UNC with evaluating how inclusive our curriculum is and just really being intentional about how we move forward with the work we do around racial equity, mm. but also, mm. you know, thinking about what it means to do remote instruction now 
speaking of, you know, issues of equity, you know, making sure that if we are going to continue along this route with doing hybrid learning online and in person, that our students, in fact, are able to participate um, and get what they need out of um, their education. As you know, as a, mm-hmm. in my, in my program, like my PhD program, I didn't, I didn't learn how to design courses online. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, remote instruction is, has its specific set of skills and yeah. those aren't skills that I learned. So, um, I guess something else that took up my time this summer was, um, <laughs> attending every possible workshop on curriculum design for online education. Yeah. Um, I yeah, feel you uh, on that. <laughs> yeah, lots and lots of things happening around all those issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What, um, you know, for folks that are tuning in and don't quite know what occupational science and therapy is, can you break mm-hmm. that down for us? Yeah. So I guess in the most basic terms, um, occupational science is the study of human doing. Occupation refers to the activities that people perform in their everyday lives. So as Susanna mentioned earlier about how um, occupational science and occupational therapy really touches the everyday, um, it's because the cornerstone or the center of what we do as researchers and practitioners um, attends to what people do every day. So the goal then um, as an occupational scientist is to understand like how people come to choose and organize and participate or perform, but also derive meaning from everyday occupations. And then occupational therapists help people return to doing those activities that are meaningful to them uh, with the quality with which they want to, to do them. Um, mm-hmm. Occupation serves both as means and ends in the therapeutic process. And all of this is grounded in the understanding of body systems and functions and the influence of people's um, environment. So we are like holistic in that way. Sure. I, you know, it's interesting because I think, I don't know if it's just me or if it's others, but when I first heard occupational therapy or science, I get hung up and I'm like, oh, occupation meaning work related. So, you know, I, I would initially think, oh, it's about like people who sit in offices all day. And so we talk about bad posture. Like, is that occupational science and therapy? And from what I'm he- hearing from you is, no, it's like, it's not just work. It's literally anything and everything that has to do with what you do and how you interact with your environment. Right, right. You're right. You know, occupation is such a loaded term, right? It has all of these other meanings. Um, mm-hmm. But essentially, an occupation is any daily life activity. Now, there are yes. occupational therapists who work in industry and do ergonomic evaluations, like something like what you're speaking to. But yeah, we're definitely a lot more broad than that. Okay. Yeah. And how do we distinguish it from physical therapy? So the the primary differences are is that PT is concerned with improving gross motor functions through the use of like exercise and strengthening balance and mobility training, among other things. And occupational therapy, we're concerned about those things as well. But in terms of how people actually function, like how can they participate in daily activities? Mm-hmm. Can you give an example? So if you were to work with, do you frequently work with PTs? I used to, not as much okay. now. So yeah, I can give an example. So early on in my career, I worked in stroke rehabilitation, right? So physical therapists would work with a stroke survivor on, you know, being able to sit edge of bed or stand and walk with a walker. If they had lost a function of a limb, like increasing the strength and range of motion of that extremity and 
patients when they would go to occupational therapy. Occupational therapists may not necessarily concentrate on those things because they're getting that in PT, but how is it that a stroke survivor continue to dress themselves and cook in the kitchen and balance a checkbook, get in and out of a car, uh, any, you know, learning compensatory strategies to be able to participate in life at every level of their recovery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So those things are so that? important. And I feel like a lot of times we forget that those things, you know, you might need assistance after something happens to mm-hmm. get those skills back. Yeah. And I know to yeah. some people, I think on the surface, it looks very simple. Um, I can, I can remember having, um, a patient who was a pharmacist and he asked, he was like, you know, isn't this just like on the job training? Like, I don't understand why you would need a master's degree to be an <laughs> occupational therapist. And I was like, well, uh, we still have to have knowledge of body systems and body structures and how they are integrated. And, you know, cause all these, these interventions are, are based on science, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do a neurodevelopmental treatment with someone if I don't understand how nerves innervate muscles, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> thing. So it's like, you know, we, we take neuroscience and kinesiology and where I went to OT school, we also had to take biochemistry and organic mm-hmm. chemistry. Um, but yeah, it's like, it is, you are, you are rooted in science. So mm-hmm. it can be a, it's a doctorate now, I believe. Right. Or you have the option um, of getting a doctorate. Yeah. So in, in occupational therapy, you have the option um, to to get a doctorate. We do have programs that offer an entry level OTD um, is the degree. So you go straight through and then when you graduate, you have a doctor of occupational therapy degree. Um, some programs offer a post-professional OTD. So that's for people who are mm. already working. They do like an evening and weekend. Um, sort of set up to to get a clinical doctorate, um, but it's not yet mandated by our accrediting body that every program right. must transition to that. But in sure. physical therapy, the DPT is their entry level degree. Okay. Yeah. yeah cool. So what's the general, um, you know, so for example, I'm in public health. And so with COVID happening, a lot of the material that's coming out in research and stuff, it's related to pretty, it's a pretty direct relationship with the kind of things that I see. Now with um, occupational science, you know, what are the kinds of discussions that are happening about, you know, occupational science and research and therapies in the time of COVID? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. You know, the, let me preface this by saying that occupational science and occupational therapy, although they are married in the terms of like what they focus on. They have operated kind of separately, particularly in the United States. So in the occupational science camp, COVID hasn't really been a topic <laughs> like mm-hmm. oh, okay. at all. Yeah. I think, you know, people are interested in how COVID impacts what they're able to do. Folks have like blogged about it a little bit, but there hasn't been um, like an explicit push, I would say, to for occupational scientists to study occupation in the context of COVID specifically. Um, now in occupational therapy, obviously because it impacts the profession very differently, there has been some, um, discussion about COVID, um, not seeing a lot of publications yet, but there have been professional calls to, for people to study it as part of their practice. The American Occupational Therapy Association put out all of these like decision making trees about like providing services 
while also maintaining all of the CDC guidelines around practitioner safety and uh, patient safety and all that with COVID. So it's definitely more on the forefront of the minds on the practitioner end. So it'll be interesting to see what sorts of publications come out uh, in these next issues related to COVID. I know I'm personally interested to to see what, what people are finding. Yeah, I I guess... Maybe it's more of like a delayed, you know how there's like a delay in some things. So right now mm-hmm. we're all focusing on, you know, like still figuring out what the heck to do with COVID and politics and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I, I imagine with OT and occupational science, maybe it is once hopefully COVID blows over and then, you know, we're, we're reading about people who have these long lasting effects from it mm-hmm. that don't ever go away. And then maybe that's where we'll see a lot of the discussions happening. Yeah, hopefully so. Um, especially with all of these calls for letters of intent, um, for the funding that's been made available for COVID research. A couple of collaborators and I have applied for some COVID funding. Uh, we weren't successful in that, um, mm-hmm. as it relates to telerehabilitation, um, cause COVID mm-hmm. also have pushed, um, service providers to conduct all of their business in ways that we haven't before. You know, I mean, telemedicine has been around, but imagine trying to do occupational therapy in every sort of setting with telerehabilitation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I don't know about other yeah. OTs, but, you know, it's not appropriate for everything. <laughs> yeah, I, ha- I, um, I have a friend uh, background for people that might not have listened to some of our earlier episodes. I went to school for PT and I actually ended up dropping out, but I, ha- I went to a school that, only did um, physical therapy and occupational therapy. So I had roommates that were in doing OT. And mm-hmm. one of my roommates was telling me at the very beginning about how she was trying to do OT. She does peds and she was trying to do OT on telehealth. And she's like, I'm trying to explain how to bathe oneself. So I have to wear like this full bathing suit and record it and explain it. And then also write up these notes in a way that doesn't make it sound strange and inappropriate. <laughs> and then try to explain it to someone else to do to the child from far away. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, oh my God, like that's like really difficult because you're like trying to explain it to somebody else to tell somebody else. And kids are so in particular, like difficult in general to try to like get them to like sit still and like listen. Yeah. It's like so yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. And I think about, you know, our current students, uh, but also prospective students having to, yeah, try to figure out how is it that I provide intervention when mm-hmm. one, I'm in school to really learn how to do these things hands on, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. telerehabilitation mm-hmm. is a part of practice, but it's not a traditional part of practice. And if you mm-hmm. are a prospective student, how are you getting uh, your observation hours, you know, and getting exposed to all settings? Uh, or at mm-hmm. least uh, a very, you know, various amounts of settings prior to um, applying to OT school. So yeah, COVID has just really complicated everything mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for us in, in the profession, on, on the practice end, but also um, OT education. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quick promo, wait, before you move on and ask this oh. question, Susanna, if you're <laughs> listening to this and you are free on December 9th and you are a current or prospective student for OT or PT, please check out some of the things we'll be posting soon because we have an event with Dr. Johnson and also a doctor of physical therapy will be joining her to talk about some of those things that she just mentioned. Okay. Yeah. Susanna, ask your question. Good <laughs> <laughs> promo. Nice yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> what an opportune time. <laughs>
<laughs> I, I was going to say, you know, just from your bio and then the work that you're doing, it, I feel like you come from a very equity framework. Um, so even in the work that you do, you know, and the research and the patients that you might have seen in the past and the associations that you're part of, it sounds to me like equity is kind of at the core of how you approach your work. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'm curious about how, what that looks like in your work when you are looking at folks with disabilities and then also folks who are, you know, people of color. And, you know, if those two come together, then that's like another added layer and yeah. how your work, you know, manifests in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, that question. And it's actually something that I'm grappling with now because I have to write about that in my tenure review packet. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and I, I laugh because anybody who's on tenure track knows how daunting that can be. But yeah, so racial equity really is the glue that I think brings both my practice interests, OT education interests, and then research together. I would say sort of the start of that came out of some clinical experiences I had actually while getting my PhD with folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities that are in institutions. And it was very strange to me that people of color who came into these institutions never seemed to leave. Like there was not any, I mean, the, the community services that are available to people with IDD is already slim pickings and qu the quality of it's questionable sometimes. But in the particular places where I worked, the sort of transition services that were supposed to happen didn't always happen for this group with without any explanation. And on top of that, if you were originally from a poor area, which anybody who knows North Carolina, pretty much the communities that are around the big schools, so UNC, Duke, and NC State, like those communities are affluent and everything literally just outside of that is rural and, and poor. So if you work from like these major academic hubs, having access to some of this stuff was, was nearly non-existent. And on top of that, these places also like to dictate what you can do as a practitioner. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I, do know for a fact that um, this one place in particular wanted to fire me because um, <laughs> I I was doing the most. Um, and by the most, I mean doing my job. Uh -huh. You know, if I am asked to do an evaluation, I provide, you know, all of the findings, whether people like them or not, offer solutions, mm. um, opportunities to collaborate. And really what they wanted me to do was just do the eval and pass out equipment and nothing else. Mm. But anyway, those experiences just really changed something in my spirit. And I was like, you know, this is what I'm dedicating all of my my work to, not just folks who are in institutions, but understanding that access is an issue in all industries for people of color and for people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's like, you know, we talk about dual disadvantage with um, neurotypical communities. So like me being a woman and being black. But if you are, you know, a person of color and you have a disability, mm -hmm. um, the barriers are even greater. You know, people with disabilities are really the largest socio-historically like disadvantaged group in the world, you know, and and too often when we think about equity, our minds first go to race, but we don't, for whatever reason, we don't think about disability. And so I say all of that to say that 
you know, I, I, I just want to do work that has real impact, not just on the therapy side, but on the policy side for people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, and particularly those who are from minoritized backgrounds. Sure. And, um, you know, that work also translates to what I'm doing in occupational therapy education. You know, the representation, really, or lack thereof, has been an ongoing problem <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in the profession and making sure we have um, inclusive and culturally affirming um, content in our curricula is very um, important to me. So I think that's, you know, how racial equity has been woven through throughout all of my my work, especially my work in recent years. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's such a uh, health equity is, at least for me, always on my mind. And it's such a puzzle at times. Um, and I imagine with occupational therapy, I feel like it's one of those things where you, it's not like I have a cold and I can go and see my primary care doctor, get some medicine. I don't have to see him for, you know, another year probably. I feel like mm-hmm. if you're seeing an occupational therapist, then it's at least several visits. I mean, I could be totally wrong. So you can tell me that I'm wrong, but <laughs> my assumption is that it's at least several visits and there's some sense of progression that's happening with the work that you're doing with the therapist. So if for whatever reason there's lack of access to that, then I don't know, like, what do people do when they when they really need these resources, and they're not able to get it? Yeah. Um, Well, to your to your point about frequency of visits, a lot of that depends on the setting and your provider, um, or reimbursement for your provider, Um, insurance Mm -hmm. and all of that. Of course, we know your insurance (laughs) status matters. (laughs) And and Mm -hmm. so many things is gross. But but yeah, the the idea is that you know, you, you have multiple visits so that um, therapists can work with you on increasing your functional performance, you know, and as long as the therapist can provide some sort of proof that therapy is in fact helping. And then the idea is you should be able to continue to get authorization from visits. And again, that's setting dependent. Mm-hmm. Now for people who need occupational therapy and aren't getting occupational therapy, you know, the best they might do is seeing someone who is, I think they call themselves like rec therapists or activity therapists. You see lots of different names for things. If you, if, if the person is a minor, you know, parents might just get them into programs where the kids can just participate in different activities, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is available in the community. But most of the times, like some, well, I won't say most of the times, but sometimes, you know, people don't get OT simply because they don't know about it or yeah. their provider isn't familiar enough to to know that they can refer someone to occupational therapy services. But yeah, so like for the folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities that I was seeing, you know, because they didn't always have access to OT, they didn't get anything else either. Mm-hmm. And if you live in a rural community um, where a therapist has to travel quite a distance to see you, you may not get services or it'll be infrequent. Sure. Yeah. When you mentioned earlier about, you know, cultural beliefs and differences and the lack of representation in the field as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, as a Black woman working in a field that is, I'm assuming, predominantly white and male. (laughs) Oh, not not predominantly male, but definitely predominantly white. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So predominantly white. Um, You know, are there any specific interactions that you've had with your clients or coworkers that's um where it was where you realize like oh you know my like rep- representation really mattered in this 
um, particular moment. So for example, you know, you hear stories about, you know, like my parents, when they go and see a doctor, they really like it if the doctor ends up being um, Asian American. Even if they're not Korean, they don't care because they just like that there's someone that looks like them. And so they automatically yeah. feel comfortable. And so from a provider perspective, you know, have you had moments like that where you were like, you know what, this is like, rep- there needs to be more representation. And it's just so very clear in that moment. Yeah. I mean, my first realization about representation in the profession, I mean, it started when I was in OT school. I was one of three Black women in the class of 25. Um, I was the only one who graduated. I only knew two Black OTs. One was a sorority sister, and that sorority sister introduced me to the other (laughs) Um, (laughs) Black OT because they were they were in school at the same university, um, right behind each other. Um, You know, while right after graduation, while I was practicing full time, every place I I worked, I was the the only Black OT everywhere. Um, and the only time I really got to interact with other Black OTs was during the American Occupational Therapy Conference where we would have the National Black Caucus meetings. <laughs> so, you okay. know, then I would, I would see other Black, other Black OTs then. So I knew pretty much any, anywhere I worked or you know, presented my work, I was, I was sort of representing Black OT America, if you will. Uh, most of my patients, I've been their only Black healthcare provider, mm-hmm. definitely only Black occupational therapist. It's the exact same thing in OT programs. I can probably count on both my hands how many Black OT academics I know. And it really became apparent to me how important it was for, for students to see me when a student said to me last year that they they didn't feel like they truly belonged in OT until they had me as a professor. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I think sometimes I take for granted, you know, what representation in OT means. Because I, I mean, I came from a community where I was used to being the only one, Mm. you know, and forgetting that, you know, for students, you know, having another brown face in the room shows them what's possible. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, that's important. And so, um, I'm glad I, I am where I am. Cause I can tell you, I have, I have some friends who are like, you know, you should go teach at a HBCU or something. It's like, but you know, our black students at predominantly white institutions also deserve to have black educators. They need Mm -hmm. black educators too. Yeah. It's such a, um, I was talking to my partner about this and I was like, you know, it's like people of color in academia have this added layer of um, stress <laughs> that we go through because we're always thinking about representation and it's very taxing, right? And it's like, you know, I don't know if you're just kind of like this normal white dude, you don't have to think about this stuff about, do I want to stay here? Do I want to go to a, you know, a predominantly white institution? I laugh because I'm like, every institution is like that, but <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, they don't have to like decide like all these things and be like, I, I want to be here for like future generations to also like be represented. And, you know, I'm just hearing so much from you and, you know, it, really takes so much resilience and self-care on your part and um, strength and social support. So I just wanted to validate and see that. And I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. Um, It's definitely not for the faint of heart. And, and on top of that, you know, the whole strong black woman trope, you know, Mm. it's put on you too. So even being able to be vulnerable (laughs) in your, 
your place of em- employment is, um, mm. you know, sometimes feels nearly impossible as well. It's like we, yeah. we cannot carry the weight of the world, um, despite what Twitter would have you believe. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter says you're the answer. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, people should listen to and trust black women. I will say that, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we are not the world's savior. Um, yeah. We will not save academia. <laughs> they don't even want us there. <laughs> oh, man. It's so true. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to let that sit a little bit. <laughs> so mm, yeah. yeah. Folks yeah. get that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So touching on cultural beliefs, so when you, um, in your research and, you know, when you're working as a therapist as well and you're seeing people, I like what, how do you approach the, um, the lens? Because for example, Diana and I, we frequently talk about how in global health, all the theories are kind of developed very from imperialism and colonization. And so, you know, that's kind of what we are as global caveat is really shifting that and being like, Hey, let's empower the communities themselves and bring those voices back. And so I imagine with the history of occupational science and therapy, it's maybe similar. Um, mm-hmm. And so how do you shift that narrative in your own work and your own research? Yeah, no, you are, you're right about sort of like imperialism in, in your education, right? And OT mm-hmm. is, is not exempt from that at all. Um, you know, all of our practice models are Western oriented and these are models very paternalistic. Been, I feel like. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And it is, it has been picked up by OTs around the world. It's like, how in the world is it that the American, Canadian and European occupational therapy <laughs> lens is like colonizing occupational therapy programs around the world? But, but it's true. I think the, the only exception might be the Kawa model, which is developed by a well-known occupational therapy scholar, Dr. Michael, um, Iwama that really considers um, a person's culture and how it impacts their, their health and, and health behavior. But mm-hmm. my own work, and, and some of this might just be my own cultural background, like I really just try to a, a, allow my, my patients to guide what it is that, that was most important to them, right? Mm-hmm. And who was important to them in that therapeutic process, like grandparents being involved in some of the early intervention work I was doing, or understanding some of the hygiene practices of Islamic women, and just just other things that would override any of these, you know, Western paternalistic ideas that I was taught in occupational therapy school, that, you know, understanding the importance of interdependence and, and community when it comes to health and healing, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's not always about independence and the individual, you know, it's, it's greater than that. But unfortunately, you know, that's, that's not how healthcare works. You know, we treat one person at a time. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that, that requires, you know, some, some creativity there. I I will say though, there has been a a shift in, in, in some of that in occupational therapy education, teaching about culture and the importance of culturally affirming care, but we really haven't seen models being put out there for students to, Mm. um, to guide students practice. You know what I mean? Um, cause that's the mm-hmm. first thing I say I was like, well, what's the framework? What does the model look like? You know? And as I say that, I'm just like, well, Korea, why haven't you done that? Um, <laughs> 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 um, 
you know, but there's definitely a lot more work we need to do around that and acknowledging and amplifying the voices of occupational therapy, occupational science scholars from the global South will help. Um, mm. There's been, like I said, there's been a, a slow shift, hopefully. And I know I, I, I can be skeptical about this and I think some of it is uh, performative, but I, I hope what I am seeing happening in the OS and OT literature is a, a permanent shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some of our, I call them the old guard, but some of the, you know, established internationally known scholars to realize, no, you cannot speak on the how Ghanaian culture impacts occupational therapy practice as mm-hmm. a white man. Like, yeah. you knew that before you <laughs> wrote your keynote. And, yeah. who, and the folks in the know about this will will be able to draw conclusions about who I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> um, there's just something to be said about recognizing your own lane and moving over for the greater good of the profession. And we're going to say we're going to be diverse and inclusive and um, have cultural humility and all these other things that we throw around. Then. The white scholars have to step aside because you are not the authority on that. Right. It's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I think I went off on a little twist. No, no, that's no. good. <laughs> and, no, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, this is very appropriate. Um, and that's, um, you know, at least for us in Global Caveat, that's part of our paradigm shift, whatever paradigm we're talking about, narrative shift, right, that we're talking about is because I think you're totally right, even within the healthcare system that we are part of, like you said, it's very individualistic. And I love that you talked about like, really having the patient drive what's important to them and recognizing that, you know, people live in a community. And that if in their cultures, they thrive off that community, then that directly impacts their health. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. why wouldn't we talk about it? Mm-hmm. when we're talking about improving their health as an individual. So I appreciate that. And I would love it if that was our core framework. That be, and- yeah, that should be the standard <laughs> instead of these ridiculous benchmarks that yeah. are yeah. based on the, what, like, five nine white male <laughs> with, like, what? I don't even understand BMI, so I can't even, like, say it with, like, yeah. the perfect athletic body type. <laughs> right. And the well, perfect I guess diet. That's, but, that's like, the thing, too, is, like, you know, in your in your work, how people define good functionality, mm. or yeah. how people what what is regarded as um, satisf- satisfactory function or good function, and you know what's the gold standard, and where does that come from? Yeah, it's that you know Protestant work ethic, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, be independent kind of thinking. You know, in in OT, the the gold standard has has been the the patient has to be independent right they need to be able to do everything without assistance like that mm-hmm. is the goal but is it is that a realistic goal yeah i don't know, know how realistic that is <laughs> and um does it is that what the patient wants you know yeah that's what medicare mm-hmm. wants but what is <laughs> what does the patient want you know um or do they do they have are they in a situation where they can actually be independent you know mm-hmm. there're just so many other contextual and cultural mediators to to that you know but but yeah so being attuned to that versus what your what the reimbursement says you should be doing um sure and that Mm. that'll be an ongoing battle i think for as long as our healthcare system exists in the form medicine yeah (sighs) (laughs) well i guess for folks who may potentially see or currently see 
an occupational therapist or involved in occupational science somehow, what would be your word of advice for them so that they can go in and be empowered and, you know, ask for things that they may not know that they could have asked for? Oh, that is such a good question. I I think the important thing for service recipients to know is that they, they are the drivers of their care. You know, um, yes, the therapist is there to facilitate you getting better, but you are the authority on your body. You're the authority on what is meaningful to you and to make that known. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be the job of the therapist to make sure that they incorporate that appropriately for, for your intervention. And if they can't do that, then have the courage to ask for someone else. Um, but hopefully if your therapist, um, doesn't believe he or she can do that, um, or they or them or whatever the pronouns are, that they have some integrity and step aside and mm-hmm. help you find someone sure. that can. Um, yeah, but just, just knowing that you, you're in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on the occupational science end, I don't know that I would have, you know, I would say the same thing, um, in terms of being a partner that, being approached as a participant um, is one thing you should, but you should be more than that, right? You should be a research partner. And I think a, the that responsibility though, is really on the researcher to already set up an environment uh, or really set up their program of research where the communities that they work with are research partners and not participants. You know, we do work with, not work on groups mm-hmm. of people. So mm-hmm. on the occupational science and I would, I would actually give advice to occupational scientists that they really evaluate who they value in their research enterprise. Mm-hmm. Now, just about the communities that you work with, not really about what it is that you think and believe, like these communities drive the work that should, you know, if not, we're just doing research for research sake. If it doesn't right. benefit the community, the things that they, that they value and care about and, or have concerns about, then what the hell are we doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> Did I preach? Just like snap. <laughs> yeah. If, we, uh, if you would like to book Dr. Kalila Johnson for your next speaking engagement, <laughs> please contact her. <laughs> if, this, if this were church, we'd pass the collection plate right now uh, so, for for a love offering. <laughs> love, love. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't oh. want to, I don't want to ruin whatever you just said by adding yeah. more. So I'm just gonna, but yeah. I, think, I just have yeah, one last ahead. question I'm going to ask. Um, okay. And this is for you as, as you and not you as an occupational therapist or occupational scientist. Uh-huh. Um, because you've said so many different things and so much that you're working on and doing during these past few months that feel like, you know, seven years, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And would you like to share any of those tips and like what you're doing with other people? Oh, gosh. So here, here's where it's going to get real about mm. academics, <laughs> right? I am very bad at self-care. Mm. Um, I think it is topic of discussion in every therapy session. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, um, you know, for a while there, I tried to uh, really be good about my yoga practice, you know, because it, you know, it grounds you, it centers you, having, you know, increasing my, my prayer practice, you know, eating well, exercising, like just setting intentions every day, all of that. I am not consistent. 
And it's just, it's just really hard to be, you know, I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, self-care is something that we're, we're constantly working on. So, um, unfortunately I'm probably not the best person to ask about that, but I at least will share and, and be real with everybody about just how, how hard that mm-hmm. is. Um, and of course, when you have all of these outside things that are going on between COVID, the racial unrest, um, the institutional pressures from being at a research intensive university. You know, it's, it can be hard to balance. Absolutely. Um, mm. so, yeah. Like I'm dealing with insomnia right now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you are in the right frame of mind and have access and have a, a support team that you can lean on, definitely mm-hmm. do that. Cause you know, as much as I was, you know, just talking about community and the importance of community with health um, and to people's health behaviors, um, you know, I, ha- I probably hadn't leaned on my group as much as I could. Sure. You know, um, I mean, I think that that could be self-care, too, is your your own social support as well as I think you mentioned mm-hmm. you, you're doing therapy. Mm-hmm. So you, in therapy, you're talking about your lack of self-care, but therapy is self-care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> Not all self-care has to be like bubble baths and things, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no, so many yeah. things. Yes. No. Yeah. I think I would, um, I'd be in a bubble bath feeling anxious about all the thoughts running through my head. So that, yeah, <laughs> I feel that. Same. That would feel like self-care to me. Yeah. To be honest, bubble baths actually make me anxious because I feel like I need a shower before I get in the bathtub. Because <laughs> otherwise, you're just like sitting in your own, your own, your own grimy dirt. stuff coming up. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't okay. thought about that, but I am now. Like, oh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, great. You're <laughs> Thanks, welcome Diana. to all of you for making that the last thought. Yeah. <laughs> well we we appreciate you so much um thank you so much for coming you know coming to, on zoom yeah <laughs> and talk to us and to plug yeah. and to plug one more time we have yep. a special class with dr johnson and dr adrian coleman coming up december 9th so come and hear her preach we'll also <laughs> pass it on the love offering <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, we will be putting the link to register for that on Instagram and Twitter and the website soon. Um, so mm-hmm. keep your eyes out for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Cleo Johnson, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at, I'm assuming, your socials or your email. Which do you prefer? We'll say email because the okay. social DMs are getting a little out of control. <laughs> mm. um, yes, yeah, so my okay. email address. And- um is uh, my first name K-H-A-L-I-L-A-H underscore Johnson the normal way at med.unc.edu Perfect. I'm glad I didn't have to say that. Yeah. (laughs) As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. Yay. And thank you to all our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thank you all for listening.